It's great to be back here with all of you. I appreciate the time off, but I am eager to tear back and sink our teeth into uh, Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up. Today we're going to continue our study of the book of Galatians, going verse by verse. And we begin today in verse 6. This is God's word spoken to us, that we would hear it and receive it by faith. Galatians 1, 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning because there is a message about you that we adore. So come and, and condescend to meet with us this morning. Come and burn your word into our hearts in such a way that our flesh is consumed and we are free to love you and serve you and think of you in every aspect of our lives. Lord, you have not come that we might sing to you for an hour a week. You have come to change and restore, to redeem and to purify. And you have begun with us. Father, may we this morning delight in your gospel. And all God's people agree. Amen. Paul's a little hot under the collar, wouldn't you say? Paul's coming in with some pretty forceful language. Astonished, quickly deserting, turning, different, distort and even accursed twice. I think for many of us, we expect the Bible to be presented to us calmly, gently, dare I say, dignified. Paul is pressing the envelope of dignified, isn't he? I think every child knows a moment in their life where dad is going to come in hot and heavy, loud and urgent. And most of us don't like that, do we? We would much prefer to have a dialogue with dad one that explains our point of view and what we were thinking. 
one in which we could sip tea and nibble on snacks and goodies. I think Paul establishes for us an important truth. Even before he speaks that truth, I think he sets a tone that we have to feel. I didn't say we want to feel, most of us at least. But there is a truth being presented here that, that is doctrine, but it is not presented doctrinally. Here's the truth. Ideas do not deserve empathy. People do. If you read Paul's letters carefully and consistently, you will see Paul speak eloquently and also simply at times about the need for patience and tenderness and gentleness. As he outlines fruits of the Spirit later in this letter, kindness and gentleness and goodness are counted among them. So how is it that he can speak of a spiritual countenance inwardly that expresses itself outwardly in patience and kindness and gentleness, and at the same door, same moment, kick down the door of wickedness like a SWAT team executing a warrant, like a father who rips the door off its hinges. Ideas do not deserve your compassion. But people do. And what's happening to the people that Paul is writing to here is that there are vicious false teachers who are presenting false ideas that lead to bad elements in the life of the people that he loves. Love is such a big word, yes? And there are so many actions that can be loving. There can be so many motivations that love produces in any given moment. So I think if I were to ask you the question, think back on your life, especially your childhood, and answer the question, when are the moments where dad loved me? Where are the moments where dad cared for me? And you might find, if you sit long enough and meditate for more than one time, you might find dad's anger as protective, you might discover his gentleness as an element and an aspect of his love. But I think most of us are prone to think of the tender, calm, gentle moments as love. And the other ones as this necessary obligation. Disciplining your children. Not out of your own anger. Ooh. It's easy 
to slip into your own self-righteous anger. It is harder to discipline in what they need, what they love to be corrected and steered. But we don't really like correction. True? We kind of want to be set free to do whatever we want to do in any moment. Isn't that the American dream? I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. Bible calls that slavery. Slavery to the dominion of self. The tyranny of self. So when we see Paul's tone being set here in verse 6 and following, it, it might be easy for us to think that he's a little crazy right now. That he's a little over-emotional. That he's lost control of himself. I dare say to you, nothing could be further from the truth. Paul is coming with force to counteract the sly and devious nature of what is infiltrating the blessed bride of Christ. These are the highest of stakes. If you get the gospel wrong, you get everything wrong. Paul wants us to have compassion on people. And sometimes that compassion demands assault on ideas. Force being levied on bad ideas. If you were to have grown up in my home, you'd know my sin better. But also, I think you would be able to say that we believe the best idea should win. So most of the time, I think my ideas are the best ideas, or all the time, I think my wife's ideas are the best ideas. Every once in a while, our kids had the best idea. When you get to know them, you'll be less shocked. <laughs> They're worth getting to know. But we always said best idea wins. So let's talk it out. Let's think it through. Let's work it out. We're going to do it in love. We're going to do it in gentleness at times and urgency at others. So I ask you, what is the urgency of your life? What gets the highest priority of urgency? When are the issues, places, people, ideas that you die on the hill for? And when are the places and times and ideas that you bite your lip, you stay silent, because it's not worth that conflict right here, right now. The stakes aren't high enough for you to be obsessed with it. I remember years ago, a meme, you, know, you guys know I love memes. I remember seeing a meme flash up that somebody shared with me, and it was a husband cartoon yelling to his wife, who's in the other room, yelling to him to come to bed. And he says, I can't go to bed. Somebody's wrong on the internet. Shocker, I know things can be wrong on the internet. Do you fight every battle? Do you do so with the same urgency, same stakes? No, of course not. 
So as Paul sets the tone here, he's coming in hot. He's coming in urgent, but he is coming in hot and urgent because he loves. Not winning fights mentally, not out arguing his opponents, although there are quarrelsome men who enjoy debate. This is not that. The most loving thing you can do when someone is distorting the gospel is attack their distortions in order that you would win their hearts. This is not something we get to compromise. This is not something we get to stay silent about. Ideas do not deserve your allegiance unless they come from the mind of God spoken to us. And that is ultimately what will bring the most renewal, the most hope, the most comfort. So let's begin here remembering the gospel. What is the gospel? If you really want to test yourself at lunch today, Here's my invited activity. Articulate to one another what the gospel is. Not in its biggest sense, not in its broadest of elements, but it's reduced like a reduction sitting on a stove. What is the essence of the gospel message? What are the core tenets of our faith? And you might find yourself Flubbing it a little bit. Thinking of peripheral things and letting them rise as the most central of things. I do this often with young believers of any age and ask them to tell me what is the gospel? What do you think? At the core of the message, what's the message? So usually in these Reformed tradition churches like ours, we do this in one of two ways. We present, in thinking about the gospel, some summary points. The gospel addresses these four things. They might be understood as like, you know, you walk into a place and there are hooks on the wall and you can just hang your jacket up and, and the hook takes care of the jacket. Sometimes when I'm presenting the gospel, I'm thinking that way. Like, all right, I gotta, I gotta present these four hooks. I got I to give these four ideas or assertions, or if I'm in a relationship with someone that we're talking long-term with, we might only talk about one of those four hooks for the whole time or for months. But we think of them through this concept of summary points, summary truths, summary ideas. Here they are. If you really want to understand the gospel, hear this. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. It's the meta-narrative of everything. There isn't a thing that that isn't the meta-narrative of. That there's a holy God and that he created all things. And he did so out of the abundance of joy and love and through our disobedience, 
we fell from his creation. We failed the system that he had set up for human flourishing. We trusted ourselves instead of him, believing and taking him at his word. And so all of creation falls with us. Sin brings death, spiritual consequence, physical consequence. And God tells Adam and Eve right away, doesn't he? There are these things that will now be harder. There will be increased pain and difficulty in precious and special moments and in everyday work. Your rebellion against me has consequences. Creation, fall. And then redemption, of course, which is awesome news, isn't it? To redeem something means to purchase back at a price. To purchase back at a price. So God comes to redeem us from sin and evil and cursedness. The curses of the covenant. Jesus is God himself who come to do for us that which we could never do for ourselves. Redemption. Redemption through a perfectly obedient life. Redemption through the bloody cross of Christ, which is a righteous God's assessment of our distorted corruption of his design. If you think you're not that bad, look at Jesus on the cross and reevaluate. And then new creation. Jesus has come the first time in salvation. He will come a second time in judgment. And after that, all things perfected. Yes? Amen? The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Did you hear that in the, in the outline I just gave you? For the kids in the room of any age, do you want my super simple gospel summary? You ready? God made it. We broke it. Jesus fixes it. God remakes it. That's a message kids can grasp, yes? Yeah. That is the thing that is being corrupted in the churches who had first been formed in the joy and gladness of that message. Make no mistake, the gospel is a message, but it's a message that moves us. There's an impelling nature to the gospel when it is rightly given and the Spirit is working faith in his people. And so there is, in an ultimate sense, the truth that the gospel is not about what you do for God. It is about what God has done in Christ for us. And so Paul, hearing the news as he was 
receiving a letter that the gospel was being undermined. That the gospel, not just one leader, not just one bad apple pastor, but that sort of everywhere in the churches that have formed in this province of Galatia, that they have been infiltrated by people who are teaching that human performance, your performance, is what your justification and sanctification are based on. Jesus did his part. They won't deny what Paul has said. They're not saying that Jesus didn't come. They're not saying that Jesus isn't God. In fact, I would imagine many of their statements and beliefs are orthodox. But then at some point, they become heterodox. They become different. That's actually the root of the Greek word that Paul uses here in verse 6. Different. Heteros. Different. Other. So when Paul gets this news, he is urgently concerned. Because people will be misunderstanding, misbelieving. They'll be held captive in fear or sadness. They'll be held captive in pride if they think that they've accomplished something. Or they'll be held captive in the pits of despair because they think that they're not good enough. That their performance failed while others succeeded. Could anything more quickly divide a church than the successful and the unsuccessful? The proud righteous and the dejected, despairing unrighteous? Why did Jesus hang out with sinners? He hates despair and brings hope. Hope not in your performance, but his. Why does Jesus intellectually go to combat the Pharisees and the self-righteous leaders of Israel? He does so out of a compassionate desire that they would know the truth, that the truth would reign. So here's Paul getting word of vicious attacks where false teachers are teaching that human performance is part of the equation of salvation. Can that stand? Or is that something for which we will die fighting against? So does Paul come in hot and heavy? Yes. Has he absolutely not praised anything about them in the opening of this letter? Unlike all other letters he's ever written to the church, there was always something to praise. Oh, no, 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 we don't have time for praise, y'all. We have to address what will kill you, what will devastate and destroy you. You, this is not an intellectual battle between equally valid points of view. And so Paul begins this verse 6 with, I am astonished. Now, usually, if you see something astonishing, you're excited about it. 
right? Every time Cirque du Soleil releases a new clip of some act of their show, I sit there astonished, perplexed, confused, I mean, yeah, but overjoyed at the ability being displayed. I don't know anyone who can bend like that. I don't know anybody strong enough to hold up those 19 people in the tower. It's awesome when a magician fools you. Aren't you astonished? When your kid does something creative, complex, athletic, musical, that's beyond what you think they should be able to do, isn't that astonishing? That is not how Paul is using this word. This is more like gobsmacked. One of the joys of reading commentaries from different centuries is your vocabulary grows. So, yeah, if you're in Britain, you're going to see gobsmacked, gobsmacked, gobsmacked. But here we might say flabbergasted. How awesome is that word? I am flabbergasted. But this one's stronger than that. This one has the connotation of how dare you. I, I, I literally was just in the room. And I told you the thing to do. And you literally just did the opposite of what I told you to do half a second ago. I literally went to the kitchen, got a cup of water, and came back. And it's worse? You ever babysit a kid and you're like, ooh, ooh, I don't have to deal with you much longer. (laughs) You're astonished. But there's also a pain that comes with that level of astonishment. There's a supreme disappointment that comes as well. And so what is Paul astonished at? That there are enemies inside the church? No, I don't think that's it. I think there's always been enemies within and enemies without, yes? So what's he astonished at? Honestly, y'all, it's the speed at which they traded the gospel for slavery. I'm astonished that you are so quickly. I know this happens, but like, woo, that was fast. I was just there he might think. And you are so quickly thinking poorly. Is that that it? (laughs) He uses the military word distort. No, not yet. Desert. Only one S. Sorry. Everybody loves dessert. But desertion is in different places and different times in history an executable offense. Desertion is never to be taken lightly. In fact, desertion is one of the biblical reasons for divorce, abandonment. I'm astonished. That you are so quickly deserting who? Deserting the church? Is, is, is your loyalty to the church? No, it's to him who called 
you. You're not just walking away from me, Paul's saying. You're walking away from God. You're deserting God. Because he's the one that God the Father whom we worship and adore, that one who has eternal decrees of our salvation. They are quickly deserting God, the God who called them in the grace of Christ. Now we've seen grace once again. You are walking away from God's favor which was given to you despite everything that you're doing. Do you really want to let go of the grace of Christ so that you can have a badge of honor in your own performance? Do you want your glory more than you want God's grace given to you in Christ? In fact, he goes on to say, that not only are they deserting God who had called them in his grace, but they are turning, isn't that the word we use for repentance? We turn towards God, that's what it means when we repent. Well, they're turning from God to a different gospel. There's the Orthodox gospel, and this is other than that. They are believing, welcoming, and living out. Whoo! Ideas that deserve desertion. In fact, when you came to Christ, you deserted that way of thinking. And, and you turned to Christ. Now, you're turning from him Deserting now the one who calls you in grace. You're turning aside to a different gospel as if there are equally competing gospels. Look at verse 7. Paul's very quick to say, not that there is another one. There's an African tribe, sociologists realized years ago, that count like this. Are you ready? One, Two, many. Would have made first grade a lot easier. Right? One, two, many. There's no five or 3,000. It's one, two, many. And if you lived in their village, three was many. If resources are scarce. Time precious. So in their world, there's one thing, there's two of those things, and then there's many of those things. What Paul is saying here in verse 7 is that there is one thing and everything else. It's one many. But it's not many added to one. It's many separated from the only. Only one gospel. All other news in comparison to the good news, it's bad news. It's bad news. And here Paul clarifies that this battle of ideas is done for the sake of the people he's writing to. This is a father's love for his children. 
He's saying, you guys are abandoning your post. You're walking away from the family. You are turning to a bad idea. A bad idea Paul took as the central bedrock, foundation, meaning, and purpose of his whole life until he looked Christ in the face. Paul knows this performance gig. In Philippians 3, he tells us that he knows it better than anyone else. And he starts throwing out spiritual resume, performance criteria, as if Paul should go in the hall of fame of saints. There's a big irony there, right? He's going to end up in the hall of fame of saints. He's an apostle. He'll judge the living and the dead. He'll sit on a throne forever, we're told. But it ain't going to be because of his performance. It's going to be because of the God who called him. So there are some people who are troubling the people in the church. Believers are getting tricked and harmed. And he knows that this is not just a scheme of man. It's not just a get-rich-quick scheme. Those are out there. Run from them. But that there are people whose desire, do you see the word want here? There are some who trouble you and want eagerly. They are after this very thing to distort the gospel of Christ. And this is where I want to pause for just a second. Because we can sound really pious and religious using all these big words. But when Paul says here, the gospel of Christ, what does he mean? I can assure you that thousands of pages have been spent trying to articulate and argue and refute and correct the proper meaning of this phrase, the gospel of Christ. The of here could be translated from, the gospel from Christ, could be the gospel that belongs to Christ. Don't, don't we use of this way in English? It can convey possession, it can represent a body of work. You can read the book of Isaiah. In a couple of places, the scripture actually says they read Isaiah, which means he was really tattooed a lot. Right? Oh, no, he wasn't. They weren't reading his bicep. They were reading his book. But the book belonged to him. But it also belongs to God because he's a prophet, and it belongs to us because we're in the kingdom of the God who gave us the prophet, who gave us the book, and we can get lost in the maze of first causes and second causes and eternal purposes. And It's the book of Isaiah. Why? Because Isaiah's the star of Isaiah? No. It's Isaiah's because... He wrote it. He gave it. He proclaimed it. Okay. So we can make the argument then that the gospel of Christ here is the gospel 
that Christ spoke. And about 100 years ago, maybe as far back as 150 to 200 years ago, you have a whole group of people who get real excited about that idea. They want to take Jesus in a naturalism view. They're going to strip out the miracles because, you know, we don't do that, so he couldn't do that. And the whole bloody sacrifice cross thing, like, that's just barbaric. Haven't we sophisticatedly moved past some ancient God who's vengeful and wants blood sacrifice? Like, haven't we moved past that? Let's just take the teachings of Jesus and we'll say that's the gospel. It's seductive, isn't it? There's this like, ooh, I get a little more freedom to decide for myself. God can't dictate everything if I'm just centered on the gospel that Christ taught until the Beatitudes smack you in the face. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That is way harder than we have thought about these things. Murder is something I do with an axe, not a thought. Jesus, you're a little radical here, although he's the original writer. So he meant the thought and the axe originally. And that's what he's clarifying. But there's this notion that we must define the gospel of Christ as the message that Christ preached. I mean, okay, here's my question. In the message that Christ preached, did he put his personhood and his work as the central element of his preaching? Yeah. So it's a false narrative to think that the gospel that Christ preached is somehow different than the gospel that we preach about Christ. Didn't Christ speak about himself? Didn't he talk about the Son of Man and the glory deserved? Didn't he talk about the purposes of God? Didn't he refer to God Almighty as his Father? Not in an ethereal sense, but in an eternal relational sense? Not created by God, but God, the one who creates. Isn't that the opening of John's Gospel? So what is it that they're abandoning? The gospel that Christ proclaimed? Yeah. Because it's the same as the gospel about Christ that we've been proclaiming for millennia now. So this gospel about Christ is the same as this gospel that Christ preached. The gospel that Jesus proclaimed is also the gospel in which he was proclaimed. And Jesus himself proclaimed a gospel about himself. He put his own person and work at the center of his message. And this is how J. Gresham Machen teaches us this idea years ago. Says this. Christ died. That's history. 
Christ died for our sins. That's doctrine. Do you see how they're married together? He goes on to say, without these two elements joined in an absolutely indissoluble union, there is no Christianity. You do not have Christianity if you do not have the cross. You do not have Christianity if you're after some ethos of his teaching apart from the judgment and salvation that was long promised about which he upheld or abrogates. In other words, brothers and sisters, Jesus is always both the author and the substance of the gospel. He is always both the author and the substance of the gospel. In that sense, it is his gospel. So we, as heralds of this great message, it's the message that sets forth Christ. The gospel that presents the person and work of Christ is the only hope of sinners. All others all different, have no hope. Not only because they are untrue, but because they are the same bad news that led to the fall in the first place. In other words, please beware performance-based theology unless you are gazing at the life and death, resurrection and mediation of Jesus Christ. Look at his performance and find your worth. Look at his performance and find your disobedience covered by his obedience. Make no mistake, friends. It is quite useless to ask someone, to adopt the Christian view of the gospel unless he has first the Christian view of sin. Now, I didn't say that. That's Machen again. Different book, same truth. So what are we to say and do here? There's no other gospel. There's one message of Christ. And then in verses 8 and 9, you have among the most strong, forceful, beautiful, immovable verses. I will speak them tenderly. Just know that he spoke them fiercely. Even if we, Paul speaking of himself and the apostles, even if we or imagine an angel from heaven preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. If an angel of heaven, if an angel from heaven stands right there, using this pulpit and maybe even that Bible 
and teaches you a different gospel, he belongs in hell immediately. He's condemnable. You get that? You guys take great joy in the condemnation of others? And only if they're the Pittsburgh Steelers, right? Or the Dallas Cowboys. Everybody can get behind hating on those guys. <laughs> James just lost. <laughs> Good job keeping your mouth closed. Yeah, Kevin would be like charging me. Condemnation is what the schemes of hell achieve. It's what they devour. They belong there. The messengers of hell belong in hell. And if anyone, anywhere, at any time, no matter what perceived authority they might have, no matter what background we could be in awe of, there are fallen angels who have a horrible plan for your life. And if they stand in this pulpit or in your living room declaring to you a gospel of your performance, favor from God based on what you did or didn't do yesterday, they should go to hell. Let them be anathema, cursed, judged, destroyed, obliterated, removed from all goodness and peace. These are harsh, strong, forceful words. So much so that he repeats it. Verse nine. As we have said before, so now I say again. He just said it. We didn't forget it, but apparently we are forgetting it. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be damned. Let him be condemned. Let him be sent directly to hell where he will know the mighty wrath of God all day, every day, forever, without end. And God doesn't call that injustice. He calls it justice. Am I a Bible thumper? Apparently I am. This is what we have to thump about. That Jesus alone is triumphant over sin. You're going to add your sacrament to his sacrifice? Baptism's going to finish the deal? Circumcision is going to fuel you in such a way that you can perform for God as if he lacked something you wouldn't have had otherwise? You didn't have a quiet time yesterday, that's why you got a flat tire today? That is anathema. One of the most amazing things about the gospel for us is that the gospel shows us a God who is far more holy than a legalist can bear and more merciful than a humanist can conceive. That's Tim Keller. 
Tim Keller, the gospel shows us a God far more holy than a legalist can bear and yet more merciful than a humanist can conceive. The cross is the great union of judgment and love, of wrath and curses and blessing and eternal bliss. So here is the gospel that Paul is thumping about. And I do want you to notice that in verse 8, Paul's talking about the gospel he spoke. And in verse 9, the only change is that it's the gospel they received. This isn't a new idea. This has already been given to them and it's slipping through their fingers because of the plots of evil men. So let's remember again this simple version. Hear the good news. Hear the gospel of Christ. God made all things. We broke what God made through disobedience. Jesus lives and dies and rises again as our substitute in perfect obedience. And one day soon, God will restore and perfect all things. Please pray with me. Lord, teach us, convict us, show us where we let our performance slip in in your judgment. Forgive us for the times and places and moments where we have substituted your truth for our distortions. May we also celebrate and praise you that you have not left us in our brokenness. You have not left us forever to be sons and daughters of disobedience. Thank you, Jesus that you have done what only you could do. Thank you, Jesus, that the gospel is not about what I have done for you. It is about what you have done for me. May that be believed in my heart. May that be spoken by my lips, read with my eyes, understood with my mind, believed in every fiber of my being and lived. In every moment I am here until the day is done and I see you face to face. Because if it is not preached or read, understood, believed and lived, it will certainly be distorted and lost. Lord, let people be lost and then found. May your gospel never be lost again in our hearts or in the, the world that you have made and speed the day when judgment leads to eternal bliss and we see you face to face and sing these songs even more personally. We long for that day, oh Lord. It's in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer and Savior and Sanctifier that we pray and all God's people agree.